You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is the managing partner of the 25-year-old New York-based investment bank, Westwood Capital, and a senior fellow in macroeconomics at Cornell Law School. With over 35 years of experience in global investment banking, he is best known for his writing on the credit bubble and the ensuing financial crisis of the 2000s, and his many articles and papers on the U.S. housing market, banking, regulatory matters, and global macroeconomics. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Daniel Albert. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be with you. Firstly, I'd like to ask you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background, your company, and your research. Well, uh, I've been in the investment banking business uh, since 1980, Uh, have uh, spent a good deal of time in the property sector, commercial property, and then expanding into banking and other areas over time. Founded uh, Westwood Capital in 1995, uh, and uh, in 19, uh, I'm sorry, in 2007, I realized that a considerable amount of uh, Disruption had occurred in the in the capital markets, uh, some of which were in sectors that uh, I was very active, including the mortgage-backed securities industry, um, and uh, decided to uh, take my uh, my my old degrees in uh, public policy and uh, economics and and start to uh, really dig back down into what was going wrong, using my uh, market uh, orientation as a basis for that. Turned out that uh, much of, uh, of the economics profession had uh, missed the boat on what was going on uh, during the 2000s, which gave me an interesting opening to uh, uh, to to write and to explore and to uh, educate uh, a lot of folks in the uh, in the profession, um, and that led to uh, you know many white papers and uh, a book called uh, "The Age of Oversupply." Uh, which explored the whole issue of of uh, the asset markets uh, and the flows that had resulted uh, from the uh, post socialist uh, period in the in the world, uh, and enabled me to uh, sort of create a a uniform thesis for what was going on in uh, both the U.S. economy and the and the global economy at large. The Podcasting University, a podcast where we show you how to get started with your own podcast and make money from it through simple step-by-step tips, advices, and instructions. Listen into successful podcasters as they talk about their journey, the difficulties that they faced, and how they made it to where they are today. You can visit thepodcastinguniversity.com for more details. So I wanted to start off today by talking about the state of the economy um, at the moment. Whilst the past two years have seen seen steady increases in the stock market and asset prices, this has been accompanied by record high levels of inflation and government spending. Now, with the Fed set to pursue contractionary uh, a contractionary monetary policy agenda, there's been a lot of speculation around the market for the coming year. So, Daniel, I wanted to start by asking you about your your take on fiscal and monetary policy throughout this pandemic, and how well you think the government and the Fed's response to this crisis was as compared to other recessions in the past. 
Well, of course, from a, a technical standpoint, this was a very brief recession, and there was a reason for that, and that was that uh, the government responded from a fiscal point of view in a way that uh, uh, we've not seen in any recent period, certainly in any recent uh, uh, contraction. Um, the reason for that was we had this uh, this virus that uh, no one in in, uh, in our lifetime had confronted. Uh, and nobody knew how long uh, that virus was going to shut down uh, economies of the world. And so in order to uh, prevent a complete meltdown of economic activity and, and of course, of the asset sector, uh, you know, capital asset sector itself, um, government stepped in, of course, with the usual monetary tools, but more importantly, uh, with the fiscal uh, channel uh, to support uh, you know, directly households and businesses. Um, and that happened to uh, a somewhat lesser extent in other developed uh, and advanced economies as well. Um, and so that, that created uh, a wonderful opportunity to observe what would happen with this extraordinarily high-powered uh, fiscal uh, spending uh, it, you know, and contrast that uh, with uh, the prior downturns uh, in which um, the intervention tended to be uh, indirect through monetary channels uh, and, uh, uh, you know, sometimes tax cutting and, and what have you on the fiscal side, as opposed to spending. So, um, you know, that that uh, was very interesting from, a, from an academic standpoint and certainly very effective uh, from an economic standpoint. Right. Um there's been a lot of talk about the, the worker shortage recently with millions of unfilled positions and unsustainably low um, unemployment. You wrote a piece for the New York Times last year talking about how Americans don't seem especially eager to return to low-wage jobs, stating that, quote, the chronic problem we face as we put COVID-19 in the rearview mirror is that the U.S. economy before the pandemic was incredibly dependent on an abundance of low-wage low hours jobs. It was a combo that yielded low prices for comfortably middle-class and wealthier consumers and low labor costs for bosses, but spectacularly low incomes for tens of millions of others. This dynamic was first brought into stark relief by the discourse about essential workers during the worst of the pandemic. Now it will be highlighted by the frustrating unequal outcomes of this great reopening. Now, almost a year later from this piece, I wanted to ask you about the state of labor market, the state of the labor market, and what we are likely to see in the coming year. Well, it turns out that that those workers uh, stayed on the bench for a very protracted period of time. Uh, the uh, data uh, from February that was just uh, released indicates that they are returning in large uh, numbers to the labor force and to and taking up these low wage, low hour jobs that they had uh, not taken up during the course of 2021, uh, largely because of the buffer. Uh, provided by government uh, transfers to households. Uh, so uh, workers were able to have the choice uh, to not take up these low-wage, low-hour jobs. And I, I don't want to uh, uh, miss the opportunity to emphasize the importance of the low-hour part of that. Uh, a lot of these jobs are, are, are shift work uh, with indeterminate hours. And you know, if you look at, say, your entire leisure and hospitality sector, which employs some 16 million or more workers, um, you know, the average number of hours worked in that sector is 25 or 26 hours a week. Um, so it gives you some idea 
of uh, of of the uh, of of the, the low number of hours available uh, to many classes of workers uh, in the economy, and of course uh, to decide to go back into one of those jobs uh, that effectively eliminates uh, your uh, control over your time because the employers are telling you when to show up. Um, you know, you you uh, you need to. Uh, uh, be fairly uh, desperate uh, in terms of uh, uh, taking on those jobs. So uh, it took, took a longer time, uh, given all the government transfers, for people to get to that point. Uh, but they are again. We saw wages go up in those sectors due to the fact that there was uh, an inadequate number of workers willing to take up those jobs. Uh, but I think that, that is now going to come to an end. Uh, you're not going to see wages rise any further now that workers are returning. Uh, and so we are reverting to a certain extent to the status quo ante, which is you know, pretty much the story of this economy. This was a massively dislocative uh, episode that lasted two years, far longer than anyone thought two years ago. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the entire story of what we're going through right now, whether it's uh, employment, inflation, uh, or any other aspect of the economy, um, is a is really the story of of recovering from that dislocation and the way in which the economy recovers from it is going to be uh, quite unique and not really comparable to other slums. So um, over the course of the past two years, um, thousands of small businesses have shut down. Um, a lot of um, employers in certain industries have, have taken huge hits, um, raising questions about their, their ability to employ um, to, to provide um, the, the same number of jobs that they that they had before the pandemic. Um, it, this combined with the fact that, um, you know, we heard a lot of talk um, from Republicans over over the pandemic um, with with, with um, you know, generous unemployment benefits um, that this would cause many workers to drop out of the labor force entirely, um, you know, just because unemployment checks were competitive with what they would make um, should they return to work. Now, with um, those sorts of unemployment benefits coming to an end, um, but still um, unsure about the state of, of um, the, the market in many sectors. Um, what do you think is, is likely to happen to those sectors such as tourism or, or hospitality that took such a big hit during the pandemic? Well, um, as I said before, people are now returning to those sectors in terms of, uh, in terms of workers. Uh, whether or not uh, those sectors will recover uh, to the point that they did uh, you know, to the point of operations prior to the pandemic is a big question. I mean, in in uh, uh, in the restaurant sector, uh, you know, uh, casual dining in is is starting to recover. But when you look to uh, hotels and also the food and beverage uh, that's associated with hotel stays, um, you know, that industry is is far slower to recover uh, simply because. You have lost um, a considerable portion of uh, business travel, and some of that is not necessarily due to uh, the virus, but due to the uh, due to the measures that uh, people resorted to during the virus in order to continue to conduct uh, during the pandemic in order to continue to conduct business. Um, now we've all learned how to do business over Zoom. We've learned that we can work remotely uh, and uh, pressing the flesh. In person, while uh, is important, while it's important to uh, some areas of of, of work, um, is not important to all. So, 
um, you know, we've we've we're seeing uh, certain sectors uh, such as uh, business travel, uh, the the uh, commercial real estate industry, uh, whether it's uh, retail properties or office properties um, and the like uh, are are going to suffer uh, from this uh, this massive change that's occurred. Uh, and of course, that's not a uh, necessarily an, an economic issue, meaning that it's not the. Uh, it's not a policy issue, I should say. Um, and no one did anything wrong or right. It's it's just an outcome of this very very unique experience. All right. Um, so moving on, uh, a few months ago, you wrote a paper for the Cornell Research Academy of Development, Law, and Economics titled "Inflation in the 21st Century: Taking Down the Inflationary Strawman of the 1970s." comparing the causes and prospects for inflation um, last year to the high levels of inflation in the 1970s. So, Daniel, could you please tell us a bit more about this paper and how these two periods of high inflation compare? Well, it's a pretty big question, but um, the, the, uh, the paper basically uh, gives you a little bit of a history <coughs> of, of the calculation of, of inflation, um, both in this uh, period from this point of view of uh, supply disruptions that occurred as a result of the pandemic and the demand surge that that occurred as a result of the fiscal uh, transfers that were made directly to households. Um, and the point that the paper makes is that these two uh, very unique circumstances, the supply chain uh, disruptions and the transfers uh, were unique to the pandemic. Um, you wouldn't see, you wouldn't typically see that uh, in economic activity. Um, and uh, of course, you did not see that in the 1970s. So there is one major distinction between the two, two periods. But then the paper goes back and looks at the 1970s and explores what triggered inflation and particularly focuses in on the period uh, from 19, uh, the early 1970s, uh, during which uh, we were uh, we finally disconnected from the Bret Bretton Woods system, uh, and the the, uh, the uh, country was taken off of, or the world was effectively finally taken off of dollar parity, meaning that we were uh, currencies were no longer pegged to the dollar, uh, and uh, the dollar was no longer uh, pegged to gold, uh, and so the the that which was the you know post war uh, Bretton Woods system. Um, at that point, the dollar devalued considerably, and of course, the devaluation of any currency results in uh, in inflation in the in the country in which that currency is used. Um, so, inflation. So, so the uh, uh, you know the, the that that in and of itself triggered an enormous amount of knock on effects uh, throughout that decade, including more, more, most importantly, a huge rise, a rise in the price of, of oil, uh, which is a dollar denominated, uh, product. Um, and so, you know, between that and, and uh, a whole bunch of other things that the paper goes into, uh, looking at, uh, there was this, you know, enormous echo effect from, uh, the end of the Bretton Woods system, something that, you certainly don't have today with a super strong dollar uh, that had existed before the pandemic and exists today as we're speaking. Um, on top of that, you you know you've got uh, some very unique things that that occurred moving into the 1970s, which was an enormous buildup in household wealth 
that uh, set against uh, supply, which was mostly domestic at the time, uh, was uh, itself uh, provided a huge demand surge. Um, again, not from government spending, but from just simply uh, uh, twenty or thirty years of uh, of wealth buildup after the war, uh, after World War II, um, and so that was a, a something that was very unique to that period. And then, sort of on top of that, you had the very beginning of the uh, of the baby boom entering its consuming years. Uh, the earliest baby boomers. Uh, were starting to show up and uh, and spend money, uh, and so you know that was a huge demographic effect. So the the paper basically examines all these factors and demonstrates how this uh, very short period that we're living through right now of ex- of, of of extremely high inflation. Or I shouldn't say extremely high; is nowhere near as high as it was in the 1970s, but a very high inflation is uh, is is related to. Uh, the specifics of the actions taken and the environment experienced during the pandemic uh, and not uh, generalized economic activity. Right. Um, and so one of the one of the things that characterized the, the inflation of the, the 1970s was stagflation. Um, so not only did, um, did we have high levels of inflation, um, there was also um, a, a, you know, a, a economic stagnation um, in the sense that there was very little growth. Um, there's been a lot of talk. Um, we already have high levels of inflation. Um, there's been a lot of talk over the coming year about um, a similar sort of stagflation um, s- scenario. So um, do you think, despite the causes, the, the outcomes of those two scenarios um, are, are likely to, to look similar? Well, you know, uh, stagnating growth is something that uh, you you know can occur for a variety of reasons. We we are in a far far more low growth environment in general uh, in the two thousands than we were in the nineteen hundreds. Uh, but having said that, uh, there's no question that as you uh, ramp up uh, inflation very very rapidly, you're going to get a hit to growth uh, as uh, uh, unless you have. Uh, wages uh, follow on in uh, behind. Now, one of the things I think people misunderstand about the 1970s is that wages did rise. There was what I think is often improperly called the wage price spiral because, in fact, there were huge lags. The, The pressure on wages was continuous during that period, but wages lagged prices um, by about 18 months on average during the entire later half of the 1970s. That's what creates the feeling of malaise, uh, as Carter described it, uh, or the, you know, the feeling of pain for households. Um, because obviously, if wages and prices both, uh, if incomes and prices both rose at exactly the same rate, no one would feel inflation at all. It would just be a change in numbers. Um, so the, the issue is, is whether or not there's this disparity. Um, but when, you know, Volcker shut down the price rises, uh, in, in, uh, 1981, um, wages, which had already been moving up quickly caught up the prices and we were off to the, off to the races in the 1980s. Um, so that, you know, that sort of demonstrates that, uh, the, the issue is not just, um, you know, economic stagnation, because you will see stagnating growth when wages are not uh, rising in line with prices. Uh, but you also 
uh, you have to realize that it's not a question of of uh, uh, of of wages not rising at all or of inflation per se, but of that gap of that lag time. Um, that that aside, the the uh, uh, present situation I think is very different. Um, we are we're going to see a significant drop off in the annual rate of inflation due to nothing more than just base effects. Uh, you know the the amount of inflation experienced during uh, the spring of last year was mammoth uh, as we were coming off of you know what was effectively deflation during during 2020 um, and uh, so you had this you know rapid price rise uh, right after the vaccines kicked in and all this money was flowing into household households pockets plus the supply shortages a lot of that has been ameliorated but more importantly, you won't have the same year-over-year year contrast with low prices in 2020 versus this massive spike in 2021. Um, so year-over-year year inflation is, is certainly going to go down. Uh, what we're going to be looking at going forward is month-over-month month inflation. And unlike uh, the 1970s, where you had this constant movement in wages and incomes uh, in an upward direction, uh, you know, in, in, in the type of wage price spiral that was experienced, my view is, and this is what happened in the month of February, uh, is that that is going to dissipate. And of course, in February, wages didn't almost didn't rise at all on an hourly basis. Um, and, I, and I believe and that obviously is going to occur in, in some part because you have the return of all these low wage, low hour jobs so that averages are going to start to come down. But also within categories, you're going to see uh, uh, incomes grow less than you did before as demand for workers is satisfied. And of course, in any slowing economic environment, you're going to see less hiring overall. And that also is going to affect uh, uh, incomes, you know, income growth. So, you know, the idea that that we're going to experience, um, you know, the sort of 1970s style stagflation i think is severely misplaced um and uh and you know it's just not looking at the facts on the ground now there are a couple of things that could cause some real problems here um right now china is experiencing the experiencing the full brunt of omicron which uh, europe and america experienced uh, a couple of months ago um they have a, a zero covid policy which causes them to lock down cities and factories and what have you. And that may reignite some supply chain problems. Again, unique to the virus, not an economic effect, um, although it has economic spillover. Um, so the uh, so that could disrupt and extend uh, in, you know, inflationary pressures on the supply side for a period of time. But on the demand side, and this gives us an opportunity to tease apart these two things, you know, we, we we certainly had supply chain disruptions of mammoth proportions during the pandemic, uh, but we also had, you know, this this massive overlay of uh, government transfers on top of what were already fairly well recovered uh, private incomes during the course of 2020. I'm sorry, 2021. Um, and so as a result, we, you know, we, we were not sure whether the Inflation was being caused by the supply chain shortages or these massive government transfers or a combination of both. Well, if we see additional supply chain shortages 
coming up again from China. Uh, it'll be interesting to watch to see whether they have the same inflationary effect without the government transfers uh, as they did in 2021. My guess is they won't, uh, because I do believe that a good deal of the rapid inflation that we experienced was the result of this mammoth amount of government transfers to households and the fact that government that, that household savings had grown so enormously by dint of the fact that, that, that households had nothing to spend their money on for all of 2020 uh, going into the beginning of 2021. So you had these, you know, this massive firepower on the part of consumers uh, that, uh, that was there. But if you look at uh, household savings rates now, they've plummeted back to levels lower than they were before the pandemic. Um, so, you know, that, that is going to dissipate that, uh, that base of savings is dissipating quickly. Um, and of course the transfers themselves are gone. So, uh, I, I think the effect of that was far more powerful, uh, than the slowdown in supply on top of that, the transportation issue is being, uh, somewhat ameliorated. You don't have the, uh, the, the backup of, uh, of, uh, shipping. Uh, that you have, you have higher shipping costs to be sure, uh, but the uh, the timing delays are not as bad as they were. So, um, you know, and some of that is 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 calendar issues as well. The the reopening of the economy occurred roughly, uh, almost perfectly, in, in in sort of a perfect storm environment uh, to be coincident with the annual Christmas restocking of uh, of stores in the August through October period where shipping is already in high demand. On top of that, you had the reopening of the economy uh, and the spending of lots of money by consumers who are looking for things to do with their uh, with their money. Um, and so, you know, it was, it was the worst of all possible worlds from a shipping standpoint. So I don't believe that's going to be repeated again. And uh, I think it'll be very interesting to watch to see whether these lockdowns to the extent that they're material um, uh, are, are problematic. Now you also have, uh, a, a BA2 variant, variant rather, uh, coming out of, uh, Eastern Europe, uh, of, uh, BA2 variant of Omicron. If that spreads back into the U S we're going to be, you know, definitely in a low growth environment, um, as, as a lot of the service industries contract again. So, you know, there's a lot going on still uh, surrounding the issue of the virus. And, um, you know, we're going to have to watch and wait and see. Uh, but, you know, if you add those things to uh, the, the fact that the government transfers are no longer with us, um, it, it's very difficult for me to expect that we're going to see continued high levels of inflation going into uh, the second quarter and through the summer. Right, right. Um, well, um, I, I wish I could, I could talk to you further, but unfortunately, that's that's all the time uh, I have today. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Um, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Nice to talk to you. Bye-bye. Um, once again, thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.